Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with Brian Smith, a 20-year veteran of the FBI who currently serves as Chief of the FBI Cyber Criminal Section, where he is responsible for the FBI's investigations and operations against cyber criminal actors and threats. Brian and I talk about the FBI's cybercrime efforts and the threat of cybercrime to both large corporations and vulnerable individuals via cyber hacking, identity theft, and old-fashioned fraud. Brian shares some of the successes that the FBI has had in recovering stolen funds, whether they be in fiat currencies or digital assets, and he talks about future cybercrime threats created by criminals who are always innovating. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you subscribe to Financial Crime Matters, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Verifin, a NASDAQ company, is a provider of anti-financial crime management solutions for financial institutions. With a cloud-based software platform for fraud detection and AML CFT, Verifin helps banks efficiently and effectively detect a wide range of financial crime, including payments fraud, business email compromise, money laundering, human trafficking, and money mules. For more information on Verifin and how to significantly reduce your false positives, leveraging over 300 million unique counterparties in the cloud, visit Verifin.com. It's a pleasure for me today to welcome Brian Smith, Chief of the FBI Cyber Criminal Section. Brian, thanks for being here today. My pleasure, Karen. So I think what might be interesting is to start with a brief overview of the FBI cybercrime effort. I mean, you have what we imagine as the traditional FBI, and then along comes digital crime into a non-digital crime-fighting organization. What does it look like, the cybercrime effort? Yeah, well, it's a natural progression of the FBI's authorities and capabilities. And while it may not be apparent on the front end of that, it really has focused our attention, particularly over the last five to six years, of how do we leverage those existing authorities and capabilities that the FBI has into this cyberspace. We've been in this space since 2002, which seems early, but also seems late for those of us who worked in the technology industry in the 90s. Cyber has certainly evolved in that time from the early 2000s to where we're at today. And back then, and even more so now, there is a requirement to have deep technical knowledge. The adversary and the technology uh, continues to get more sophisticated. So it's something that we have to keep up with, with both our personnel and their understanding, as well as then the technology that we're using on our end of it. But I think what's really critically important and what has helped the Bureau in this space over the years is the pairing of the functional knowledge. And I use that functional terminology because that's what the adversary is trying to do. It's not the ones and the zeros. It's not the coding that's happening behind the scenes. It's these, what's the intent of the actor? And that's where I think the FBI with our authorities, our capabilities, and our history really can leverage that functional skill set across the board. Because if you think about it from aspect of the adversary, what is it they're trying to do? Well, they're trying to do the same things that people have been doing 
for hundreds of years, and you could even say going back to antiquity, is that they're trying to steal secrets from us. And these may be business secrets, they may be government secrets, they may be defense secrets of weapon systems and things like that. They're also stealing personal secrets of us. They are conducting espionage. They are pushing propaganda for their means or their government's efforts. They're stealing intellectual property from us. And from what I'm concerned with on mostly is they're stealing money from us. Overseeing the FBI cyber criminal operations section, I'm going after adversaries who are engaged in this activity for monetary gain. They're non-nation state actors. They are doing this because they can make money doing it. And so they treat it like a business. And so that's the approach that sometimes I think we lose sight of uh, in law enforcement. I think sometimes private sector companies lose sight of it. And so they're doing this for financial gain. They're moving money across borders as anonymously as they can. Increasingly, they're using cryptocurrency for that. And it takes an understanding of both the technical side of it, as well as then what they're trying to do and marrying up those skill sets to address it. And if you kind of go through all those things I talked about of what the adversary is doing, none of that's actually technical or anything new. We're talking about money laundering in there. We're talking about fraud. We're talking about theft. We're talking about counterintelligence. And those are things that the FBI has done throughout its 100 and almost 20 year history. And it's by leveraging the capabilities and the understanding of what the adversary does in those spaces with deep cyber technical expertise that we're able to actually make an impact on the threat. So I think that's an interesting place to go next. And I have kind of a two-part question on this. And that is, when we, we met in Vegas, you talked a lot about thinking like the bad guys. And uh, really deciding, well, you know, I guess looking when, when you've got a room, uh, what are the open windows? Where would you try to break in? So it might be interesting to talk a little bit about how you do that and how you want financial institutions and others to do that, to think about what they would do if they were the criminals. And then kind of leads into sort of what kind of cyber crime are you seeing out there now that's preoccupying you? Yeah, and I think that's the exact approach that we want people to take, which sounds odd to have an FBI agent say, we want you to think like a criminal, but it really gets back to that point that I made of thinking functionally of what's the purpose behind this. Prior to the Bureau, I used to do consulting work, and we put in these systems to enable commerce and speed commerce up and speed up communications and enable global supply chains. Those are all business purposes. If you think about it from the aspect of the adversary, if I can interrupt those business purposes, and whether that's a ransomware attack, whether that's stealing data, whether that's stealing intellectual property, then I've interrupted your business and I can take that as an advantage for myself. And so we at the Bureau are looking at it, we've turned the problem on its head and looked at it from the adversary's perspective. What is it that they need to do to engage in this conduct? And then we approach our investigations based off that activity, both on the technical side and the functional side. And so if we can undermine their ability to use the infrastructure or develop malware or communicate with them or stop the flow of money to them, that's a win on our end. From a defensive standpoint, if you think about it from a corporation, from a, either whether you're a financial institution or a small business, you need to be thinking about what's of value within my department, not just my company, but within my department or my division that an adversary could take advantage of and figure out one, how do you protect that information? 
because that's going to be different from your finance department and they, they consider valuable or if you're a manufacturing company what people on the manufacturing floor consider valuable and that the best companies at protecting themselves we find are the ones that are having communications between those functional areas and the IT folks we're living in an environment where it doesn't matter how much money you spend on this how good your IT folks are it is becoming an arms race and you're not going to win an arms race how you're going to win this battle is that you leverage the distinct expertise. And so when you're talking to people in your finance division, you say, if this information on our profit and loss, our earnings per share, things that are going to go in the K's and Q's that can be part of the market, I need to protect that. And I need to work with my IT folks to protect that information. If they're not having that conversation, chances are is that stuff is not being protected and is being available and exposed to the adversary. So part of that, as I started to ask the question too, was, and that's a great sense of the kind of awareness that people have to have wherever they are sitting. What kind of big crimes and issues are you dealing with in the cyber world space right now? Well, there's a whole host of them. And like I said, if you think about cyber, it encompasses a lot of different things. What I'm focused on is the non-nation state financially motivated folks. Within that, we have some shared ownership of things with my counterparts in our criminal division. And those are things like business EML compromise, which continues to be an issue both in the dollar attempted losses as well as in the successful BECs. We're focused on criminal marketplaces and forums. So these are environments by which malware is shared between criminal actors, guns and drugs are sold online. And these dark web marketplaces are used both by cyber and your historic organized crime and drug trafficking organizations. And then we continue to see instances of what I would call consumer type fraud. And these are the romance scams, the elder fraud that we see out there, and then account takeovers, which is something that I think financial institutions are running into all the time. And the things that I own or my section owns are intrusion activity. So that someone's intruded upon a network, it's not necessarily cyber enabled. Uh, and these are data breaches, general intrusions, banking trojans, where they steal online credentials and use those to gain access to your account and conduct unauthorized wire transfers, any other malware that's out there, DDoS attacks, uh, hacktivists, and then the number one priority for us is ransomware. That is clear and above the, right now the most impactful cyber criminal activity that we're seeing out there. You know, it's our number one priority because of the dollar loss that we have associated with it. But also, and I think all of us over this last summer saw with the Colonial Pipeline incident, the JBS Foods incident, and then the Kaseya incident is that these can have impacts on our day-to-day -day lives. And I think that was a bit of a wake-up call for this country of recognizing that ransomware is not a nuisance anymore. It can be a national security problem, and we need to start treating it as such. So you deal a lot with financial institutions, and can you talk a little bit about what are financial institutions getting right and what are they getting wrong about cybersecurity as you either deal with an incident or whatever kinds of interactions you've had with financial institutions? So I've been with the Bureau now for just over 20 years, and I think there's some positive news that I'm seeing out there with financial institutions. 
they continue to invest heavily in systems that are giving them insight into what the adversary is doing. So that's things like the transaction monitoring that's happening out there, establishing baseline behavior for users, monitoring how individuals and users are accessing the system and when they're accessing. There's additional options that are given to consumers for additional and enhanced security that they can have. I see the banks doing more and more of educating of consumers on a day-to-day basis. I see more information sharing now than I had when I first started in the Bureau back in 2002. And that is, I'm seeing that both from the bank-to-bank side, and that's through you know groups like ACAMS, from the BSEG, from Bank Policy Institute, 314B sharing that happens out there, and then also with law enforcement. That is, I think, a good projection of where we need to be, the information sharing side of it, because I think and this has been positive as well, is that the banks have realized that this is not a zero-sum game and that you're all in this together and that you all understand the threat, the better you can clean up the environment out there. Some of the things I think could probably be a little bit better is, and this has come to me, I think, more since I've moved into the cyberspace, is better integration internally between the compliance bank investigations, AML functions, and the cyber component within the financial institutions. In some of the conversations I've had with banks, and I don't know if this is across the board, but they may not have access to some of the information of who's trying to gain access to the system. And so it's treated as an IT problem of who's coming into it, as opposed to understanding of it. That actually informs our understanding of what the credential stuffings look like, what the account takeover activity is looking like. And so the more that that information can get integrated into the security functions, I think banks will be better off. There's also the thinking like a criminal and thinking functionally, particularly as we have new technologies out there and cryptocurrency has been a game changer thing for all of us. But thinking about it, not from the context of, do I need to be an expert in tokens and cryptocurrency tracing, or do I need to be an expert in understanding how could this be utilized within fraud as investment vehicles? What's the adversary going to be doing with this information? And so how can I then protect against it? Is it helpful to kind of imagine who the criminal actors are in this space? I mean, maybe it's not, but does it help to talk a little bit about profiles and typologies that might help companies and financial institutions, uh, the subset of companies, see the attacks coming? Yeah, I think you have to think about it, like we talked about before, of turning it on its head. And, you know, the typologies that we're seeing out there really kind of depends on what the scheme is. And we try and put out a number of those out through intelligence products that we then host on our Internet Crime Complaint Center, IC3.gov, of different trends that we're seeing of activity that's out there indicators of that activity, as well as then we try and then share that type of information through groups such as ACAMS, other speaking engagements that we do for financial institutions. So our job at the FBI is really simple. It's two things. One, we need to make cases, which means that we're putting people in jail, and then we need to prevent cases. And how we prevent cases is that we share intelligence so that consumers and companies and financial institutions can better protect themselves and identify the activity early on. Verifin, a Nasdaq company, 
is a provider of anti-financial crime management solutions for financial institutions. With a cloud-based software platform for fraud detection and AML-CFT, Verifin helps banks efficiently and effectively detect a wide range of financial crime, including payments fraud, business email compromise, money laundering, human trafficking, and money mules. Verifin's customers comprise of 3,700 financial institutions, and Verifin analyzes over a billion transactions each and every week. With counterparty resolution and enrichment, and over 300 million unique counterparties in the cloud, Verifin provides you with a more complete view of customer activity, significantly reducing false positive alerts, delivering context-rich insights, and accurately assessing customer risk. For nearly 20 years, Verifin has helped institutions like yours fight financial crime and keep pace with changing regulations. For more information on how Verifin can help your institution, visit verifin.com today. In talking a little bit also about where companies may fall down, I know that you have a, a real track record of getting back some of the stolen fiat funds if they go through certain banking or other financial channels, and a bit of a record of being able to get back some of the cryptocurrencies. And that involves a number of things. And I guess, A, I want you to talk a little bit about what that involves, but B, how companies can be prepared. Obviously, they've got to be able to report and respond well if you're going to help them get money back, right? Exactly. And I think the one lesson that you can take from any of those instances is that there's a phone call or some sort of communication to the FBI on activity. When you look at the scenario of business email compromise, last year, 2021, I think the attempted fraud was about 2.4 billion in BEC losses. That's about 20,000 different complaints that we've received on it. We've instituted with our counterparts at Treasury and with the financial institutions what's called the financial fraud kill chain. What that does is it enables if we can get information to us quickly after that unauthorized wire transfer occurs, that we have some mechanisms in place by which we might be able to retrieve those funds. And last year in 2021, there's about 443 million that was processed through the financial fraud kill chain with 328 million of that coming back and frozen by the banks to then get returned back to victims. That's a really good news story, but it doesn't happen on its own. It happens because that process is in place, but it also happens because the financial institutions jump on that activity right away. And it's all predicated on early notification to either the FBI or to the financial institutions to get this information across. On these types of things, you know, our job is to make cases, like I said earlier. And so that's going to take some time and there's investigative activity needs to happen within that. But when these come in, our objective, our number one objective right away is to try and get that money back. And we will do what we can on that space. And we really appreciate the cooperation from the financial institutions on this. That result, which is 74% of those that went through, doesn't happen without those financial institutions and the people in those institutions engaging in activity and working with the victims on this. They need to call on it. And being prepared, obviously, having systems in place that they're ready to do that and everything. And calling, reporting, having the right information to you, all of that, right? Exactly. And some of that comes with then also knowing who to call at the FBI. Is that you know that 
your local FBI agent, the white collar squad, the cyber squad, that you have someone that you can reach out to, or you can report it to IC3.gov. And that gets into ransomware. And so we've had a number of instances this past year where we've been able to get some of that money back. And in those instances, Colonial Pipeline was an example where we got half of the ransom payment back uh, from the adversary. In the Sodenakibi, our evil case, we seized almost $7 million from the adversaries in that case, as well as arresting people and bringing them back to the United States to face charges. And in last year, in total, I think in ransomware, we've seized or forfeited over $40 million, both domestically and internationally. That's a good news story in some respects, but it's all predicated on getting that phone call right away and that we may be able to claw some of that money back. We can't promise that we're going to be able to do that in every instance, but I can assure people is that if you don't let us know that this happened, if you don't report that ransomware incident, you will not get the money back. And the current reporting right now says that it's probably about somewhere between 20 to 30% of ransomware incidents are reported to law enforcement. And so there's a whole host of activity that we're not even aware of. And I think any of us who deal with data recognize that the more data that you have, the better you can understand what the threat is, as well as understand and identify mistakes that adversaries make in instances and take advantage of them. But if we're only looking at 20% of their activity, it's harder for us to identify those and take advantage of those mistakes. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we probably have a number of listeners out there in the securities industry and a lot of cyber crime fraud uh, associated with identity takeover and that sort of thing. And are there a couple of lessons that come out of that or a couple of things that you can say? I know, too, you have a background in this as a result of being detailed with the SEC while at the FBI at one point in your career. Yeah, I spent about 18 months detailed to the Securities Exchange Commission back in 2011, 2012 timeframe. And this is post-financial crisis, post-Madoff. And you know, the, the intent of that program when we built it was to see if we could leverage the skills and the capabilities of both agencies to better affect and provide assurances within the capital markets. I have a passion for securities fraud and also for cyber, and I'm really seeing a melding of those two threat vectors, which in some respects is concerning because Though securities fraud cases are not easy cases to make, and cyber cases are not easy cases to make. But this is where I go back to understanding this from a functional standpoint, is that you need to start leveraging these complementary skill sets between whether it's within one agency or multiple agencies to understand and address the threat. And so, like I said, we're seeing a consolidation of activity within cyber and securities fraud. We're seeing it in initial coin offerings which is cryptocurrency as an investment vehicle. And it's not unlike other offering frauds that we've seen over the years and trends that we've seen of whether it's Forex trading or it's binary options or just the nature of initial public offerings. People thought, oh, well, let me see if I can get an IPO. I don't care what the company is. It's an IPO. That must be good. The adversary will take advantage of excitement in certain markets or excitement for certain technologies and a 
lack of understanding by the consumer. And so they take that advantage of that and they use that as a vehicle just for fraud. There may not be anything technical about it, but it's just an investment vehicle. We continue to see the use of crypto as a fraud vehicle of whether it's the initial coin offerings that we're seeing in it, whether it's crypto mining that they're getting people to invest in that for the most part don't understand what exactly is happening there and they invest in it and then they can't get their money back out of it. And then we're seeing increasingly on the cyber side, the use of cyber to enable other types of securities fraud, such as market manipulation and then insider trading. And so you think about from a security standpoint, those are the three big things, offering frauds, market manipulation and insider trading. And we are increasingly see cyber within those spaces. We've seen data breaches where instead of those identities being taken to then open up credit cards and obtain lines of credit or loans, those identities are being utilized to engage in market manipulation or microcap schemes. So similar to for any listeners who saw Wolf of Wall Street, that type of activity where you have penny stocks that they pump up using these stolen accounts or stolen identities to have these accounts pump up the price and then they sell on the back side of it. So those victims never know that they've been uh, victimized by it. The brokerage firms, mostly online brokerage firms who have this activity are seeing these accounts get open and then these penny stocks being purchased with it. And then we also see have seen some instances and have a couple of cases right now that are in the public where we've had entities who have gained access to information prior to the markets uh, to engage in insider trading. And so this is a trend. It, it's concerning to us because it takes two pretty specific skill sets. But I think what I'm optimistic about is that I'm seeing more and more cooperation on the government side as well as then on the private sector to try and identify what this activity is. And in any of the cyberspace, the nice thing about it is that they leave breadcrumbs. And as long as we can then acquire those breadcrumbs, it helps us put that piece, the puzzle back together and identify who and what happened in this space. Well, Brian, we're really just about out of time. So maybe this is a chance. Are there trends coming in fighting crime? Anything keeping you a little bit awake or that's your next focus? Uh, and also, the you know, it's a chance to even say something about success. You've talked about a number of successes that you've had already, but any final thoughts? Yeah, I guess it's the sophistication of the adversary in this space and that that's concerning to us is the fact that they are engaging in pretty specific and complicated frauds. The good news on that side, like I just said, was the fact that there's a number of entities and as a citizen, you should be proud of your government and what it's doing and the cooperation that I am seeing across multiple entities, both from law enforcement to civil and regulatory entities, and then the private sector of people recognizing that we're in this together. And as long as we understand that these complementary skill sets doesn't replace any one entity, they're actually there to build on each other. It makes me optimistic back about where we can go and where we can address these frauds. Well, it's great that we can end on a note of optimism. And uh, Brian, thanks for your service, the FBI service, and for all this information today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Karen. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Brian Smith, Chief of the FBI Cyber Criminal Section. I hope you found the podcast compelling and will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on either Apple Podcasts 
Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.